This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Shelby Oakley. Shelby is a director in GAO's Contracting and National Security Acquisitions team, you know, focusing and reviews on all kinds of major acquisition programs. Um, and someone I've gotten to know, especially in the context of the Department of Veterans Affairs reviews, right, Shelby? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we've had a lot of engagement on that. Yeah. yeah. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks for, for joining me today. And um, I guess first, I'd like to uh, let you give the listening audience a little bit about your background and how you ended up at GAO. Sure thing. Well, thanks for having me, Roger. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about GAO and, and our work. Um, well, I'm basically a homegrown GAOer. I came directly out of graduate school at the University of Pittsburgh um, to GAO, mainly because of the opportunities that it presented to work on a, a variety of different issue areas and topics. And um, right out of the gates, basically, I landed in, in the acquisitions team um, and have been settled in there ever since. Uh, the b- majority of my career was focused more on uh, NASA, large-scale NASA acquisition programs um, until I went into the senior executive service in 2015. So I'm 20. Next week is my 20th anniversary at GAO. So I've been I've been there a, a while now at this point. Well, congratulations on that. That's that's great. Um, so did you ever think? I know my background, like, you know, I came to the Washington, D.C. to work and said government contracts, acquisition. Uh, what is that? But uh, did you did you have an interest in that when when you were in grad school or it's just, you know, I'm coming to D.C. I want to get, uh, you know, the first job I can get. I, how did it happen? <laughs> That's basically it. I'm coming to D.C. I want to get the first job I can get. And, um, you know, I think that the, the fact that I landed in the acquisition area is really a testament to the fact that you need to be open to right. doing all sorts of different things, especially when you're starting out in your career, because things that you would never think you would find interesting turn out to be super fascinating. And just given the critical nature of the of the things that we review in my team and, and, and that my teams review, it, it's, it's important work and it, it's gratifying from that perspective. Yeah, it touch acquisition does. It's um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's important work. It touches everything the government does. I mean, without our pre- procurement system and the support you know acquired through it, the government frankly wouldn't be able to fun- function, right? So absolutely. Um, and getting that right in terms of you know best value and um, you know if to, for mission support, and at the same time, as you know, like right, they you know, there's a lots of uh, uh, policy. Um, that's implemented through acquisition mm-hmm. in many different ways, whether it's small business goals and socioeconomic programs and that sort of thing as well, which makes it a, a you know, a fascinating area. Um, Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So um, tell me about your portfolio and, and what you cover and some of your major work just to introduce it. And then we can start drilling down on some of the, these reports and some of the very interesting um, and compelling um you know, findings and recommendations that you all made? Sure. Uh, So my portfolio covers um, both VA and the Department of Defense. So I have all of our VA acquisition related work. Um, You know, we've focused a lot on VHA just because of the, the, the large scale nature of the procurement function within that organization. Um, So my DOD work is really focused on a few different areas. I have our overarching um, work looking at acquisition policy and oversight and any reform type issues. Um, Under that work, I do a lot of our, um, I do what is called our annual assessment of major weapons programs that we've been doing now for 19 years, um, where we take a look at um, the Department of Defense's biggest, most expensive, complex um, weapon systems and assess their performance in, in, a, in a quick look type of format. Um, 
I do some work on leading commercial practices for acquisition management. And so this is where we go out and we take a look at, you know, innovative companies, how they go about acquiring, um, you know, their products, how they go about developing their products and what, what the government can learn and can apply from, from those practices. Um, and then uh, another thrust of my work is the Navy shipbuilding portfolio, taking a look at how the Navy um, builds its its major um, ship platforms. Um, and so it's kind of a, a wide gamut and we get to work with, you know, all the Veterans Affairs committees as well as all the defense related committees, some of the biggies up there on Capitol Hill. Right. So uh, that that is a huge portfolio and, and I, I, I assume you get, there's a big group or big team. <laughs> that works on this. Can you sort of talk about how, how, you know, your organization is structured and sure. how you put together the teams to go out and take a look at a, at a particular program or acquisition? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my team that I'm a part of is called Contracting and National Security Acquisitions, as you mentioned. And so we cover um, all government-wide procurement and acquisition issues with the bulk of our work really focused on DOD, NASA, DHS, and VA. Um, aside from DOE, they're the biggest buyers in the federal government of, of systems. And so we have a managing director that leads our team. Her name's Michelle Mackin. Um, and then under her, there's uh, uh, five, five directors. That's that's my role. And we each have our own individual portfolios. And so for my portfolio, I have assistant directors who kind of specialize in those various areas. For example, my assistant director who does our shipbuilding work has been doing that work for 15 years now, right? So she brings a lot of really good expertise and institutional memory to the work. And then we pull the teams together with, you know, an analyst in charge who really runs each individual engagement and then various different team members, some of whom have expertise and some of whom bring um, just general analyst skills to bear on the engagement. And so we, um, we execute our work that way. Teams are typically in the like three to three to five people range, depending on the breadth and complexity and scope of the review. And, and, you know, they're executed over, you know, eight, eight months to 18 month timeframe, depending again on the complexity and scope. And so we really, um, we have more work than resources, like most. That's, uh, that's government, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, we, we, while I wish I could say I have hundreds of people helping me, it's, that's definitely not the case. Um, so we really target, you know, the work we do and we focus on key areas of interest to our congressional clients, as well as, um, you know, areas that we identify as key for oversight um, through our own individual expertise and, and reviews. And so we get mandates from the Congress to do the work. Um, those are through things like the National Defense Authorization Act every year or any standalone legislation or the appropriations bills that come in for each of the agencies oftentimes include mandates for GAO to do the work. But then we're also requested to do work. Um, and the beauty of the VA work is it's very, um, it's, it's oftentimes requested by the four corners, of, you know, minority, majority, HVAC, sure. and SVAC. And that makes it really uh, great for us as an independent organization to be able to do, you know, fair and balanced and, and nonpartisan work. Right. And so I think, yeah, like we were talking before the show, just you know, most of your DOD work is actually mandated by statute, mm -hmm. by Congress, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, the mm -hmm. VA work is typically by request. And it sounds like yes. bipartisan requests. Here. Yes. So that's a good thing, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and when you go out and do one of these reviews, you're, you take a look at you know, the underlying you know, documentation, you do interviews. Can you talk a little bit? Of, we got about a minute left in this segment. Talk a little bit about that. And then in the next segment, we can start talking about some, some, of, you, some of your reports and findings on the DOD side. Okay, great. Yeah, no, we, um, I'll, I'll use a, a contracting related review because I think it'll be uh, resonate with your listeners. But it, to do something like that, we go through a scoping process where we figure out who we need to talk to, what documents we need to review, where we can pull criteria from, um, all sorts of different things like that. And then oftentimes we will um, do a contract selection, you know, where we'll go through and pull 
pull the actual contract files and dig into them. Um, and, you know, as you know, those things are a wealth of information. They have tons of documentation and, and things that can tell you the story of how that actual procurement went down. And so we spend a lot of time looking at those contract files, and then we meet with loads and loads of people. On a typical VA review, we, we usually meet with over 100 people, conduct over 100 interviews. Sometimes it's more than 100 people because they're group interviews and that kind of thing to hear their perspectives on the issues that we're, that we're um, tasked with addressing or get their um, rationale or reasoning or story behind their contract that they were working on. Um, and then we take everything back and we kind of process it and, and try and analyze what we're seeing and identify key themes. And then that's how we develop our report and the message of our report. Great. Okay. Well, we are. That was perfect. That we're right up on the break, Shelby. My guest today is Shelby Oakley. She's a director in GAO's Contracting and National Security Acquisitions team. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Shelby Oakley. Shelby is a director in GAO's Contracting and National Security Acquisitions team. Um, Her areas of responsibility include Department of Defense Procurement, shipbuilding in particular, um, and the VA, some VA logistics and procurement programs as well. Um, And lots of important stuff that, that she's responsible for taking a look at and providing reports to key stakeholders uh, on. Um, and so this segment, as I mentioned you know, in, the la- in the first segment, Shelby, I think we, we should start focusing on DOD first, I think, and take a look at uh, you know, what's going on there. And, um, and first, let's just talk about, I think uh, we mentioned, I mentioned, and it's, it's fact, right? Since 1990, I think, DOD acquisition has been on the high-risk list, um, you know, and, and you do your annual assessments, you know, Uh, on that as well. Can you talk about why it's there? What are the issues? What are you seeing? What are some of the recommendations? That's a lot of different things, but yeah, but I'll leave it to you to to start where you want to start. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, As you, as you are aware, obviously DOD spends billions, hundreds of billions annually to um, acquire major weapon systems, things like aircraft and ships and satellites and, hopefully get them to the warfighter. And, you know, we've been looking at how DOD goes about doing this for a really long time. Um, And, you know, since 1990, at least, um, we have been reporting um, that this area is at high risk. And when we say high risk, we mean at the highest risk in the government of waste, fraud, abuse, mismanagement, or opportunity for cost savings. Um, And so we... um, have identified that because consistently and over time and over many different administrations, (laughs) um, these programs continue to fall short of, you know, cost and schedule and performance goals. So we're not getting what we think we're getting and we're not getting it for the cost we think we're going to get it for. And we're not meeting the schedule that we're intending to meet it for. Um, And so this has really led to a situation where DOD struggles is struggling with delivering innovative capabilities to the warfighter in a timely manner. Um, and now this has led to a situation where, where it's about keeping pace with these evolving threats that are now surfacing from other countries like Russia and China. Right. And so making, you know, significant improvements in how DOD goes about, um, you know, developing and deploying its weapon systems is, is something that is, um, you know, is, is a challenge and it's a complex issue. And it's one that's evolved over time. So since 1990, it's not, you know, necessarily the same exact story, but the themes remain the same. Right. So, and, and more recently, you know, some of the, you know, I guess streamlining or reforms that DOD is, has attempted or is, you know, trying to, to leverage. Can you talk a little bit about that, those and where they are? Sure thing. Yeah. So in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2016 and 2017, Congress mandated a lot of very significant reforms for the Department of Defense. Um, and so since then, DOD has really been working to change the way it does business. Um, and these were things like reorganizing um, the uh, Office of um, 
what's now acquisition and sustainment um, into acquisition and sustainment and uh, research and engineering. And that was to bring a more of a focus on bringing innovative capabilities and technologies into the process quicker, because there's always been this challenge for DOD to kind of connect with these innovative companies and bridge this kind of gap between technology development and um, an actual acquisition program. So that was one of the big things. Another thing was focused on um, devolving responsibility for acquisitions um, down to the services. So the Office of the Secretary of Defense for a long time kind of held um, you know, um, oversight over all in, in authority over yes. all of these acquisition programs. And now the services basically manage, you know, 90, 95% of the acquisitions with OSD really only holding on to, I think it's nine, nine major programs at this point in time. Um, and then finally, and, and really importantly, um, uh, DOD has uh, revised its fundamental acquisition guidance, the DOD 5000 series, its policies, to focus on um, less of a one-size-fits-all solution for an acquisition and more of a tailored solution where a program can kind of pick an acquisition pathway that most um, matches the characteristics of the program. Um, and so these are things like um, there's a software acquisition pathway now. Um, now there's something called a middle tier of acquisition pathway. And so this was middle tier of acquisition pathway is supposed to be the middle ground between a major acquisition program and an urgent capability, right? Somewhere, something that could be fielded within two to five years. Um, and so they're in the process of kind of implementing and living these new policies at this point in time. And, um, you know, there's a there's a lot that that needs to be kind of played out with regard to how effective um, this new approach is going to be to actually getting capabilities faster to the warfighter. And so but, that's what we're really seeing playing out in the Department of Defense right now. So so it, what you've described is now they're they're tailoring processes to, I guess, sort of reflect the requirement they're trying to. To yes. get a hold mm-hmm. of, yeah. Whereas before it was very cookie, cookie cutter, mm-hmm. one size fits all. Um, does that entail like things like using OTAs and you know that because you know there's lots of focus these days about everybody knows what an OTA is. I I, I think at this point, at least <laughs> that's my yeah. impression, at least on the private sector side, because they're all interested in it. And then, you know, and then over the years has been the outreach to like Silicon Valley and that sort of thing, you know, yeah. uh, is that still part of their strategies and, and where are they going with those, with the DOD going with those things? Absolutely. You know, earlier this year, um, or I guess in late 2019, we reported on DOD's use of OTAs and, and really saw that there was, um, I think, an 88% increase in the use of OTAs since 2016. And I think it's not that OTAs haven't always been around, right? I mean, they've right. always been a tool in the toolbox for, you know, um, you know a, an acquisition. But the fact that the focus is on trying to um, speed attain speed and attain innovation, the OTA is a tool that enables DOD to better work with private, um, maybe, you know, smaller, more innovative companies to bring on their products more quickly. And so for something like a middle tier of acquisition program that is supposed to be based upon um, a technology that's of significant maturity that it could be either prototyped or fielded within two to five years. And OTA is a, you know, is a tool that can kind of facilitate that pathway. And so we definitely are seeing increased use. Now that doesn't mean that all MTAs use OTAs, but um, we are seeing increased use. Right. From a, you know, whether it's OTAs or any other type of, you know, acquisition where there's prototyping involved. Have you guys looked at, you know, the step that has to be taken from on uh, prototyping, you sort of prove the technology is going to be a value to the warfighter to the mm-hmm. next step of production. Cause one of the things I sort of hear anecdotally is that, you know, from the prototype stage to the, you know, to the, um, you know, deployment reproduction, there's still that gap there and that people yeah. get to the end of the prototyping and they say, okay, what do we do next? Do we do 
like a far based procurement? What you know, are, are you guys looking at that at all? Or yeah, and and in fact, when I mentioned the fact that we're doing like leading practices work, um, that's some of our ongoing work right now, where we're looking at how do how does DoD prototype versus how do leading companies prototype? Right. And I think one of the clear differences that we're already seeing, at least from the past, and, and now with the use of MTAs, it might be a little bit different of story going forward. Is is that you know MTA. Um, DOD is developing prototypes that are really actually operational assets. And so instead of, you know, prototyping, um, destroying, learning, prototyping, destroying, learning, it's like, we're going to build this prototype, we're going to test it, but then we need it to actually work right. for our <laughs> operational asset. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of a loss of learning that happens in that regard. And I think that's why sometimes there's a challenge with prototyping from that perspective, because the intent of it is maybe different than how you would see it actually being done um, in an effective manner to determine whether or not we should even build this system at all as an operational asset. Sure. Sure. Uh, You know, Shelby, we're already up on the break for this segment. When we come back, let's, you know, finish up on DOD. You know, I got some, uh, some questions about data and requirements development. Uh, and, and, and I do want to ask you, as I mentioned, I promised to ask you about the Columbia class uh, submarines at the, rep- the replacement for the Ohio. And then we'll try to segue to v- VA later in, in the next segment. Okay. Sound good? Sounds great. Okay. My guest today is Shelby Oakley. Shelby is a director in GAO's uh, contracting and national security acquisitions team. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Shelby Oakley. Shelby is a director in GAO's contracting and national security acquisitions team, uh, focusing on DOD and the VA, uh, areas of her responsibility. Um, so, and we've been talking about DOD in the last segment, you know, drilling down on some of the key issues. And I know an area where you guys have done a lot of work when you're looking at, you know, um, you know, acquisition system of major systems or just generally their procurement, um, the data management issue, especially now, as you mentioned that, you know, the services have more responsibility over actual development of capability Mm and that's, that data, I think, is, and I'll let you answer the question, but the role of data plays in that and what you, what, what you have seen at GAO from your guys' perspective and, and what you may have recommended to DOD on that area. Yeah, so, um, you know, the whole premise of uh, devolving responsibility for acquisition programs down to the services was really based upon um, OSD, in particular, ANS, Acquisition and Sustainment, the Office of Acquisition and Sustainment, being able to conduct data-driven oversight. Um, and obviously, for data-driven oversight to work, you need data, right? And consistent data is really important um, uh, from that perspective, Um And so one of the things that we've been um, keying in on for the past couple of years is how is OSD collecting, requiring, obtaining that kind of data. And frankly, um, at the beginning of these reforms and in the early stages of these reforms, the the services were a little reticent um, to provide OSD with information because they're like, we're in charge now, you know what I mean? What do you need? What do you need this for? Right. And so OSD has really had to work a lot on figuring out what it needs and why and how to communicate that to the services and ensure it's getting consistent information. This is a little easier for programs like major defense acquisition programs because they're traditional, they're typical, right? They typically have selected acquisition reports that they have to, you know, send that's consistent. But for things like middle tier of acquisition, it's kind of the wild, wild west, right? These programs are all over the board. What the services require are different. Um, And so OSD is really trying to work to figure out what uh, it needs for these programs. It's put in place some some, data requirements at this point, but I think that that's definitely a work in progress as is what the um, new selected acquisition report is going to look like, because I'm not sure if you know, but the requirement for them is expiring this year. Um, And so, 
DOD and, and the Congress and, and GAO, frankly, we're all in the midst of, you know, trying to assess what the, the new kind of reporting requirements would look like for these programs. And, and we have an ongoing engagement um, looking at that as well, too. And it's super important, right, because without data, how can you make decisions about whether these things are actually fulfilling um, the expectations that they were set up to fulfill? Right. The data and then the metrics to be able to write. So yeah. it's, it's interesting. So, and one of the things that you always hear is like, you know, we have, we over report or like from a DOD perspective, you know, yeah. various times. Right. So I presumably like a lot of, a lot of these discussions about reporting is what, what data really is important, right. That's fundamental. And also yeah. how you collect it and that sort of, so that you don't, get into this issue of like, you're asking, we're doing more reporting than developing kind of, yeah. you, know, you know, cliche that's thrown out there. So is that, is that part of what you guys are all talking about? Yep. That's absolutely key. And that's, you know, what we've been in our audit work. That's what we've been doing is asking a lot of questions about like, what, what do you use? What is important? What do you need for your oversight purposes? Right. And we're talking to many different stakeholders about what, you know, what they use it for, because it's not just the Congress and it's not just DOD that use those things. It's other people involved that then use that information, but keeping it to a minimum set of, you know, really important critical data, and then metrics um, is going to be an important um, process for DOD and important for um, ensuring the um, success of the reforms that they now have in place. Right. So uh, just one quick question on requirements development, because it seems to me that's the age old issue of, you know, we want like, you know, you know the latest, greatest cutting edge beyond the capability of of anybody out there, it's never been done before versus, yeah. you know, the 75% solution is, I mean, that's an age old thing at DOD, I th- of my impression is, right? Is that, you know, is yeah. that fair to say? And just, you have any yep. thoughts on that? Yeah, that's absolutely um, what we've seen since 1990. Um, you know, our, our best practices work is really premised on programs are successful when at the beginning, um, and for DOD, that's milestone B, they achieve a match between the requirements that they're being asked to um, achieve and the resources that are available. And when we say resources, we mean time, technology, people, um, you know, those kinds of things to be able to support the acquisition. And where there's a mismatch, you know, for example, whenever you're setting a requirement for speed, let's say, um, you use the ship, you're setting a requirement for speed, do you actually have the technology to be able to achieve that speed, right? And if you're coming to me as a decision maker and saying, uh, we're developing it, you know, it's about at a maturity of a five or something, then that should raise a big question mark for decision makers to say, mm, this isn't a given, right? Like, right. so maybe we should adjust the requirements or take more time to develop the technology so that those requirements can be met before we go headlong into an acquisition program. Right. And that, that ends up costing more money because you're trying to yep. achieve. Right. So, yep. so I, I promised I was going to ask you about it. So I wanted to ask you about the uh, Columbia class submarine. I know you've done some work on that. So just for the listen, listeners, what is that? Um, yeah. and, and what does it mean for the country? Yeah, so the Columbia-class submarine will be the replacement for the current Ohio-class submarines, which are the sea-based leg of the nuclear triad. So the nuclear triad is the air leg, the sea leg, and the ground ground leg. Um, the entire nuclear triad needs to be recapitalized right now. So you're talking... <laughs> billions and hundreds and billions of dollars. I mean, I think it's almost, um, you know, up to a trillion at this point. And so the Columbia class submarine is the Navy's sea-based leg solution. It's a nuclear ballistic missile submarine. Um, And so the issue with the Columbia class submarine at this point is, is that we put off, um, you know, decisions to start the program for a few years. And that has led to a schedule that is frankly um, has no room for error. Right. Because the Ohio class submarines were designed to only last 30 years. Um, By the time the Columbia class submarines come online, they're going to be in service for 42 years. Um, And so there's lots of questions about how we're going to be able to um, either 
sustain the Ohio class longer if the Columbia class schedule um, deteriorates um, or not. And so we've been doing work for, um, I guess we're on our fourth year, fifth year of looking at the Columbia class program We're mandated by Congress to look at it every year. And every year we take a look at technology development, design progress, construction progress, um, We've done an assessment of their schedule or of their cost. Um, you know, we're looking at their schedule this year, um, taking a look at the kind of fidelity of it. But the bottom line is, is there's no margin for anything to go wrong. And it's a highly complex program. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> I, I uh, it's highly important. Navy's number one acquisition priority. So it's right. going to get resources thrown at it. Um, and so, you know, it's certainly something that is, is, um, you know, has achieved, received the attention and, and the prioritization of both the Navy and the Congress. But there's also major industrial base concerns um, on the building of the submarine because the industrial base itself had really lapsed. Um, and so the Navy at simultaneously to building the, pro the submarine is having to shore up the industrial base to be able to actually execute when they need to. Yeah, it's it's almost like it's too important to fail, right? Basically, right. <laughs> yeah, I hate saying that, right? Because everything's too important to fail until it isn't. But um, right. But you know, in this in this case, um, the need has been reiterated for a triad, and and the you know the sea base leg of the triad is 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 very survivable, um, and so it's certainly something that is um, you know an important aspect of our nuclear deterrent. And, it, and, and we're going to be going through the same exercise with the ground-based yep. portion of the triad and, and then, and then the air, the air. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So it's yep. all, it's all coming. Yeah. And, uh, and they all have equally challenging schedules as well. So it's not like anyone's going to be right. easier than any, any other one. Well, we got like a minute left Shelby. So I wanted to finish up on DOD, um, and then we'll do the work to cover the VA in the, in the last segment. But just from your, you know, we've mentioned multiple times, you know, since 1990 on the highest risk list. Um, but that doesn't things mean things haven't improved in some areas. Can you talk about, you know, where things have gotten better? And there's always going to be challenges, just given the complexity, sure. you know, and the value of, what, of what's being acquired. But go ahead. Yeah. No, there's been a lot of improvements. Um, and in fact, we, you know, we've seen performance improve um, in, in, since 2010, particularly. There were a set of reforms in 2010 that led the way for um, more measured programs. Um, these are things like not clean sheet designs, not leaps in technology, more modifications to existing platforms and that kind of thing that are more incremental. Um, and so, you know, uh, cost overruns definitely decreased. Um, schedule overruns have been decreasing um, for sure. And so, um, you know, DOD can really take heart that, you know, they have made a lot of progress and, and made a lot of different um, improvements in that regard. Policies have been changed to align with, you know, leading practices, best practices for, um, you know, technology development and design and whatnot. And so, you know, there are there is a lot that has been done. But as I mentioned um, before, it's a complex and evolving right. Um, area, right? And so now you take into account what does the performance of the defense industrial base mean, or the defense um, acquisition system mean? Is it only cost and schedule outcomes? Or is it actually getting good capability to the warfighter faster and providing systems that are cyber secure. Right. Um, and, and I'm glad you, know, you mentioned these, that. Right. Yeah. Cyber, so yeah. there's all these other considerations that are now in play that kind of feed into the discussion of, is this a high, you know, a continuing high risk area? And I think DOD is in the, in the infancy of working on some of these issues, particularly cyber related challenges that, that could potentially affect, you know, the outcomes of the acquisition system itself. Right. 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 So that's a great wrap up uh, for DOD and next segment we'll, we'll try to tackle the VA. So um, my guest today is Shelby Oakley. She's the director in GAO's contracting and national security acquisitions team. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to off the shelf on federal news network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Shelby Oakley. Shelby is a director in GAO's contracting and national security acquisitions team. One of 
the big areas of her responsibility is uh, taking a look at VA uh, acquisition and uh, management and logistics programs there. Um, and I know you've done a lot of work in that area, and I'm just going to turn it over to you. We can talk about you know, what, what you've seen. There's lots of challenges. I think lots of opportunities there um, in terms of you know, improving the efficiency and effectiveness of the acquisition management. Um, but Shelby, what, what have you guys been looking at and what have you found? Sure. So, you know, we've been really digging into VA acquisition procurement related issues over the past, you know, six to seven years um, and issued a number of products that really identified a lot of consistent themes and challenges within the Department of VA um, for um, how it goes about acquiring, you know, goods and services and whatnot. And so, um, you know, these are things like um, majorly outdated acquisition policies and regulations, um, lack of effective medical supplies, procurement strategies, um, training challenges, um, workload issues, um, obviously, unreliable data systems and unreliable, um, you know, inventory systems um, and contract oversight. And then also leadership instability. There's been a lot of leadership instability at VA. And so these things led us to designate um, VA as a high risk area in um, 2019. And so, you know, many of the areas that we focused on are heavily weighted toward VHA, um, just given the breadth of, you know, dollars that VHA spends. Um, And, you know, one thing I forgot to to note is, is that, you know, the the landscape of VA has actually really changed significantly over the past decade. The budgets have just increased pretty much, you know, exponentially year over year over year, right? And so when you're talking about, you know, why maybe there's a lot of challenges within VA right now is that they're doing more from a procurement perspective than they have in the past. And, you know, that's coming with a lot of road bumps and, and requires a lot of um, examination. And that's frankly what we're doing. So we've done work on the medical surgical prime vendor program um, right from the the very beginning when in the transition to the next generation program, we found a lot of challenges as your listeners might know, you know, the switch was made from um, medical centers being able to order off of the FSS, um, the federal supply schedules, which had hundreds of thousands of supplies available to them, to this um, medical MSPBNG program that was an, an attempt to achieve cost savings, clinical standardization, um, and consistency um, amongst the, the medical centers. And so it went from kind of this ginormous um, formulary that they could order, you know, orders that they, supplies that they could order from to um, a very, very small amount of supplies. And that led to a lot of challenges. And so we found that VA didn't really actually um, execute that transition very well. They didn't do key things like involve clinicians. Um, uh, They based what they put on the formulary off of a faulty spend analysis based upon unreliable data. Um, and that le- then led to, you know, people not really using it. Um, and so these, right. purchase, the medical oh, purchase card, open market. Exactly. Right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So kind of defeating the purpose of the whole transition itself. And so, um, you know, VA learned a little bit uh, from that kind of initial rollout and then took some made some changes in its kind of next iteration where they um increased the size of the formulary um, and did a number of other things to try and increase utilization, which it did, but um, it's not necessarily to the point where we would see in private sector entities, you know, the utilization on a, on a formulary type catalog is around 90%. Um, and mm-hmm. I think VA is, you know, somewhere around the, you know, 30 to 40% realm. And so achieving those long-term cost savings and whatnot is going to be a really difficult challenge for them if they don't kind of put in place a program that provides medical centers what they need when they need it. Um, And so, yeah, so we had had a heavy focus on that, um, that program for sure, as well as um, did some work on the veterans first um, requirements, which, um, you know, are particular to VA, um, the federal supply schedule program, um, and a a number of other different areas. So, uh, you know, let's, 
let's talk a little bit about the FSS program and then go back to the prime vendor program. So with FSS, I know, you know, one of the, you, you mentioned their use of it for basically the old sort of prime vendor program yeah. mm-hmm. as, as the base for it. And it's no longer the case. Um, and one that you did a report and like basically said to VA, VA you got to figure out what the role is for this program. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what is, do you, do you have, do you have any sense of where they think they're going uh, with it? Or is it just still at a point where they're not, they're so focused maybe on the prime vendor program that FSS is over here as, you know, just sort of yeah. to the side while they try to figure out prime vendor first. Yeah. I think, you know, that's a million dollar question right there. Right. Is, is that, you know, for, medical supplies in particular, there's a lot of overlap between FSS and um, MSPV. And at the time where the change was being made um, to transition to MSPV NG away from FSS, um, the FSS program was leaderless. It was, had, was filled with, you know, acting positions. And so no one really knew what the change meant other than the fact that FSS was being used less um, in lieu of these, you know, MSPV um, requirements. And so I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to figure out how FSS fits into whatever VA's plan is for going forward, whether it's, you know, 2.0 or, or another approach, um, you know, if it's able to. And so, you know, there's going to have to be a lot of um, communication and strategizing about what that means, because, VA manages FSS for the entire federal government, not just just for VA, right? Right. And so, you know, understanding what, um, you know, that could mean for FSS is going to be super important. And, you know, we recommended that VA take a look at the duplication between FSS and MSPV. and, And their response is really focused on their category management activities that they're undertaking and that that would be kind of resolved through that um, process where they're looking at kind of what is the best vehicle for attaining, you know, certain, you know, supplies or categories of supplies going forward. So, and I think one of the other things you mentioned, uh, or talked about is greater collaboration or working with GSA Mm -hmm. on the FSS program, you know, as a potential way to, because it does take, you know, there, there's a complete inconsistency between GSA's policies of how you award a contract versus VAs. And that yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but um, you yeah, have there was, yeah, there was definitely a lack of communication um, between those two agencies um, that we identified during our review. Some of that had to do with the fact that VA didn't have somebody in place running that FSS program. Right. And so, mm-hmm you know, that things fall by the wayside in that regard. But, you know, we did recommend that they establish a new memorandum of understanding that would enable them to collaborate on things like policies and and changes to the broader FSS program that could affect VA's, you know, schedules that it manages. Uh, uh, Thanks. So, and then turning back to the MSPV program. So um, I think a couple uh, questions, um, you know, you mentioned clinically, you know, sort of input or clinically led sourcing. And, you know, the re- there was result there in Congress passing some, you know, guidance to VA about, you know, clinically led uh, sourcing. Has the VA made progress on that from, are you guys looking at that? Um, we looked at it in our um, MSPV report that we issued in September of last year. But, um, you know, those efforts had kind of stalled during the pandemic, the CDSS efforts, the clinically driven strategic sourcing effort that they were uh, um, undertaken. But as we understand it, they're um, they are back underway with implementing that initiative and trying to, you know, achieve that greater standardization with the clinician input for, you know, 2.0 or any CDSS applies to. You right. Know, beyond Anything. just right. MSPV. Yeah, right. exactly. So, and along those lines about standardization, you know, data, as you mentioned, data, you talked about data with DOD, but I think data is even bigger issue with the VA, right? And it's just, at the end of the day is the key or the, the foundation of it's got to be the modernization of their yeah. IT systems. Yeah. yeah. Can you, do you have any take on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of um, astounding that the nation's largest integrated health system is, you know, being operated without a real, you know, inventory management system. The financial management system needs to be modernized. They're putting in place this electronic health record system. And so, Really, um, the data that VA has to rely on is is a complete challenge, right? And so, um, you know, even when you're talking about simple things like contract actions, um, <laughs> it, duplicative work has to happen to be able to kind of track contract actions um, because systems don't talk to each other. Um, and so this these modernization of key systems within... Um, VA, such as through implementing the DIML system, um, yes. EHRM, FMBT, um, are all going to be critical for VA to make progress on its overall acquisition management. They all bring an element to bear that will then support kind of improvements in that regard. And, you know, in my, I had a testimony um, in uh, the spring time frame where, you know, we made a recommendation actually based upon what we've seen and what, how they're moving out. Um, you know, you have all these balls in the air, you have all these ongoing initiatives, but how do they all work together to, you know, achieve and move you forward to make progress? Nope. It was very, very unclear. Um, VA agreed completely and is working on that, but um until that's developed, um, understanding kind of what real progress is going to look like and when we're going to achieve it is is a huge question mark. It's almost it's like the requirements for the IT system and the data you, on implementing that in and of itself is going to be critical to getting to yes. be able to collect the data for yep. you know the logistics. Um, exactly. Yeah, and and you mentioned demos, and I think you guys have done some work looking a little bit at you know VAs you know, pilot that they started, you know, to implement demos and kind of yeah. move to DLA. Um, and I, don't, I think you had some observations on that. Can you share those? Sure. Um, well, first, I, you know, I think it's um, important to clarify that VA is moving to demos, regardless of whether it moves to DLA, MSPB. Demos is going to bring that more modern inventory management right. system to VA, um, regardless. So there's a schedule for that. Um, and so, you know, what we found in our MSPV work related to um, VA's DLA MSPV pilot um, was that um, the VA had initially planned to pilot it, just that, right? And with any pilot, what the intention should be, um, according to leading practices, is that you establish metrics of what success would look like of the pilot, and then you put in place measures to be able to assess the pilot, and then and then you determine what the scalability is and whether or not it's the right decision to move forward with implementing something like that enterprise-wide. Um, so that was the plan, but that's not what VA decided to do. And, and as you know, they, they made the decision public that they were going to transition completely to Demel's MSPV and, and, you know, maybe lost an opportunity to be able to assess that pilot and hash out, you know, any issues that might surface about, um, their use of that program, um, any complications that might surface about their use of that program before, you know, making that, that big, big decision. Right. So for example, like they could have looked at vets first and how it fit within the MS, DLA, MSPV or demos and that sort of thing, just to fine tune that as necessary. Right. That, that's a example yeah. potentially, right? Yeah. That's, that's one of the critical issues. And I'm not saying they didn't consider it. Um, right. You know, it's just in terms of, you know, understanding how in practice it might play out. Um, you know, one of the recommendations we made to VA was, um, you know, in your pilot effort, you need to provide guidance to ordering officers about how they should select SDVOSBs through DLA's MSPV catalog, right? And so um, that's definitely something that we recommended that they do. And they're working on it, but they still haven't issued that guidance. That type right. of information would be, you know, is critical to provide um, you know, support to SDVOSBs for how they're gonna play in that new program. Right. So uh, last question, we got, uh, you know, a little less than a minute left, just kind of, cause you talked about standardization and, you know, a formulary or preferred products list catalog that whatever the language they're using now around, you know, MSPV NG or MSPV 2.0. Mm -hmm. um, 
do you look at, have you guys looked at like this balance? Cause you hear a lot about standardization to reduce costs, but at the same time you hear a lot about physician's choice yeah, and just the way that the VA operates and they use lots of, you know, I guess university type hospitals and doctors who, you know, are not, you know, who have their own, you know, you know, um, yeah, views preferences. on what to use or not yeah. preferences, you know, how they dress that in a logistic system of you got, are you guys looking at that or have looked at that's a big challenge that goes to the it, requ- underlying requirement, right? Yeah, it's absolutely a big challenge. And so I think the like scope of standardization may look different in VA than it does within like, say, you know, uh, you know, Kaiser Permanente or, you know, one of those hospitals where they have their own physicians and they're, you know, kind of um, a little bit um, different from that regard. And so I think that that's actually one of the challenges of the CDSS process and, and, and the standardization is to like, what is the right number? What is the right number of options that enable us to achieve cost savings, but also, um, and bring clinical consistency but then also not kind of, um, you know, buy every single doctor, every <laughs> single specific thing that they need. Right. It's a, that'd be interesting to see how that plays out. And um, I know you'll be doing a lot more work on it. <laughs> it's moving we forward. So, yeah. So <laughs> I want to thank my guest today, Shelby Oakley. Shelby is a director in JAO's contracting and national security acquisitions team. And I'm Roger Waldron. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.